1: Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, home of the Whopper. I've run out of slogans, so I'm stealing others. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids or streaming live at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen.
2: How about home of the furniture industry? Home we, of the we were at
1: one time. Well, office furniture. Office furniture. Well, yeah. <laughs> Even Steelcase has like six employees. <laughs> home
2: now. of the fire cabinet. Yeah. Well,
0: fascinating history of Grand Rapids.
1: Well, yeah. We'll, we'll delve into that on a later show, no doubt, when we completely run out of topics. Um, we are at no shortage of, of news items to talk about this time around.
0: But we have some old ones that during our colossal break, yes uh, where, where we
2: We had more break than a French workers, break. at least we
1: had output during our break though. I mean we had special episodes we had that's true, so people weren't left entirely without.
0: But there was a very interesting story that came out that uh, it's it's really hard to put down, even though it's it's not as hot in the news right now. This is one worth talking about.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, Uganda and their uh, love of the homosexual. For those of you who haven't heard, there is a bill in Uganda that uh, has not been passed yet, hopefully will not be passed, that would make homosexuality a capital crime, punishable possibly even by death. It would also make concealing someone else's homosexuality a crime. So if you knew someone else was gay – and didn't say anything, you too could be prosecuted.
2: Did you hear the Barbara Streisand coming from your neighbor's house? I d- <laughs> Take him away.
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's been pretty clear that this movement in Uganda has had a lot of, uh, a lot of backing by conservative Christian voices here in America. Mm-hmm. Not to say that they started it,
1: nor that they proposed the legislation, but there are certainly connections here.
0: Right. Ugandans uh, every year on June 3rd celebrate a national holiday, martyr's day, which commemorates an event uh, back in 1886. King Mwanga had, according to an NPR article.
1: By our very favorite Barbara Bradley Haggerty.
0: Yes. King Mwanga ordered two dozen male pages. To be burned to death unless they would have sex with him, and they of course refused and became martyrs. And so they um, refused because of their faith. Yes, they which refused is because they were Christians the... and they didn't want to be forcibly sodomized. Which I, I don't and, think you can who would? blame yes. anybody for that. This
2: wasn't in the job description,
0: of course. So this event is very much in the national memory of Uganda, and of course, certain religious right activists here in America traveling to Uganda have kind of preyed upon this. Mm-hmm. Um, for example. One would be Scott Lively, the president of Defend the Family International and author of the book called The Pink Swastika.
1: Yeah. You don't even need to read the book now, I don't think. Hitler
2: brown shirts. They have pink shirts.
0: Yeah, uh, who traveled to Uganda in March of 2009 uh, to warn them about the gay agenda here in America and how the evil West is exporting exporting the homosexual lifestyle, which will, of course, threaten to destroy their culture. (laughs) And so not surprisingly, some politicians in Uganda whipped up into a fury over anti-gay paranoia, then drafted this This bill. And
2: and it should be pointed out that a lot of the information that they received from these Western evangelical sources was of the thing of equivalence between homosexuality and uh, pedophilia. Absolutely. And they made it seem as if that's, uh, oh, you guys didn't know that? Well, our Western. Science basically says these things are equivalent, and it always starts with the, with the, you know they want to uh, to institute a thing where they can sodomize boys and right. blah blah blah. So they gave them a lot of a lot of these Western seeming experts who the Ugandans look up to, right? Because right. they come there with da- bags of money and and such and try to do programs. Uh, were presenting this as if they were experts on uh, on this, yeah, yeah,
0: as if this was scientific fact and
1: right. And a number of the ex-gay uh, movement people, the the people who say. Homosexuality is a choice. You can change, um, which we've soundly debunked here on the show. And a lot of them um, have ties to Uganda as well. Even Rick Warren. Um, who gave well, the inaugural this, prayer for Barack Obama, has declared Uganda a purpose-driven nation. Th-
2: this has connections with several stories we've done recently. The The family that we've yeah. done, the family has connections with this, too. They were sending... Yeah. Uh, Uganda is a very... Uh, it's a country that seems to have been sort of uh, taken on as a special project by American evangelicals. Yeah. It, and, yeah. And, and In so a weird we have, sort of way. Yeah. Yeah, even when we did... Remember when I did that talk two years ago at the, for the CFI on, uh, on the religious right, and, there's, and one of the oh, issues sure. we talked about was like the, the condom use... Distribution bans and mm-hmm. such. Well, Uganda was one of those nations that had had a successful anti aids program, very uh, uh, you know, explicit messages. But then, when the Bush administration came, they they you know wanted to enforce abstinence and be faithful right. over the condom use. And so, I played a clip from that when I gave that talk about some Ugandan activists saying, you know, we like President Bush's emphasis on AIDS, but his policies are being detrimental. So there's the, this isn't they the removed most
0: foreign aid to Uganda yeah. uh, mm-hmm. for these. Condom distribution program. So it's not just
2: not just the homosexual thing. They've done this on a multiple front area of trying to to mold Uganda as kind of their almost like banana republic sort of thing. We can remake them in our image. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, Haggerty, to her credit, uh, actually made a good point of bringing to people's attention that several religious right leaders have not stepped up to condemn this bill uh you do have rick warren who initially refused to condemn it and then uh eventually, eventually did, as yeah. as the press was building up and it was tarnishing his reputation he he backpedaled on that.
1: Which is the case with all of the the people who have now tried to distance themselves from it. They Initially they said nothing and only when it became a media storm did they say or, or oh they, no no right. no of course I don't support this. But they disavowed
2: is... that there was any connection between their like the, yeah. did you see the clip with Rachel Maddow and oh, the author yeah. of the, the gay therapy book <sighs> there and yeah. so you know he was saying he was saying I, I want to be clear I don't la- approve of this measure in the legislation it's overly mm-hmm. harsh but when she said you know read some of the claims in his book that were so inflammatory you know, it became clear that that it's disingenuous to suggest that when you go in, it's like you know throwing a, a match into a pile of gasoline-soaked rags. You can say, "Well, I didn't mean for this to happen," but you're playing. You know, right. what did they think was going to happen? No, right.
1: and, and and I have to encourage you all to find that uh, Rachel Maddow she video. She takes him. She apart. eviscerated this guy with his own book. It was uh, it was wonderful.
0: Yeah, Haggerty points out that quote: "U.S. evangelical groups most publicly tied to Uganda." Uh, have been the quietest. And right. she names Joyce Meyer Ministries, Oral Roberts University, mm. uh, College of Prayer in Atlanta, all have close ties and decline to express reservations about the death penalty. And what's even more amazing to me are some people who are actually coming out and, and defending the bill. Yep. Uh, not just refusing to condemn it, but defending it. One of those being a conservative Christian media watchdog group called... Accuracy in Media.
1: turns out even the name is not all that accurate.
0: <laughs> it's amazing, really. Uh, you, people need to go to doubtcast.org and find the link to this editorial by Cliff Kincaid. Um, the, the title alone gives you an idea. Media Homosexuals Bash Uganda's Christians. There is some horrible stuff in this, but I, I'll it's just – appalling. Yeah. I'll just focus on uh, how they construe the bill. The The one thing they get right –… is that they uh, they point out that some have falsely claimed, as we did just a couple of seconds ago on this show. True. Uh, some have falsely claimed that it would make homosexuality a crime punishable by death. Um, that is actually not true or not entirely true. Uh, the, the death penalty – is for cases of aggravated homosexuality, they say. This would be cases where the individuals were HIV positive and did not tell the other partner. Um, so that that's what right. the death penalty is reserved for. It's not just being gay. Now, I don't think that makes it Does all it that I don't think it makes a damn bit of difference. What about a heterosexual
2: couple? If somebody right, gives right. The HIV exactly. is, from a heterosexual
0: Of course. Contact, I'm, I'm not defending the bill. No, no, I'm no, just saying that uh, AIM is accurate in that one regard that uh it doesn't that specifically it a little make bit misleading the way homosexual feelings. presented it. Yeah. yeah um but the way they then construe the bill is that um, okay, maybe it's a little harsh in some areas, uh, but they say it's a law that's formed to protect children from homosexual predators yeah. and the dangerous public health impact of the homosexual lifestyle. The bill is designed to save lives by curtailing the spread of homosexual conduct and disease that kills millions. And they, they put this up as this is a very proud piece of legislation by concerned Ugandan Christians meant to help and better their society. Wouldn't someone think of the children? Right. And yeah. these homosexual activists in the media are completely distorting it. Let me read you a quick list that I took from Ed Brayton's blog, Dispatches from the Culture Wars. Here's a quick list of what this proposed bill would do. Hmm. Uh, Number one, it would reaffirm the lifetime sentence currently provided upon conviction of homosexuality and extends the definition from just – from sexual activity to merely touching another person with the intention of committing the act of homosexuality. Flirting. Yes. Hmm. It – of course, it creates a new category, uh, aggravated homosexuality, which as we talked about, a death sentence attached to that. It criminalizes all speech and peaceful assembly for those who advocate on behalf of LGBT citizens in Uganda. Um, The the consequence would be fines and imprisonment between five and seven years. Wow. So you can't even argue against this. It criminalizes the act of obtaining a same-sex marriage abroad with lifetime imprisonment. So if Uganda travels to a different country and gets a gay marriage – life in jail. Um, well they should just stay out of Uganda, right? Oh yeah, why well, go back? Um, well it also adds an extra territorial and extradition prov- uh, provisions that allow Ugandas to prosecute gay Ugandans living abroad.
1: Which which goes against what they're saying this bill is for. If they're out of the country, the, the Ugandan children and society is fine. How is this no, no, going we, to – We've all heard about them? like the
2: Israeli secret uh, police going and kidnapping people and bringing them back to extradition. Yeah. So now we'll have Ugandan agents like prank darting people in the airports right. and dragging them back on planes because – you know, And trolling gay bars to find – What are you find? doing it in the Castro district? Yeah. <laughs> And
0: and just to show you how family-friendly this bill is, uh, it adds a clause which forces friends or family members to report LGBT persons Mm, to police within 24 hours of learning about that individual's homosexuality or they too could face fines and imprisonment. Mm,
1: Unbelievable. As a note of encouraging news, the president – of Uganda has called to have the bill withdrawn. That's true. So
0: that's good. But the sponsor of the bill hasn't withdrawn. Won't
1: do it. But I, – and I don't know, quite frankly, how the Ugandan system works, if it's like ours where the president can veto it, should it uh, come across his desk. I, I don't know if that's how it works.
0: Well, we'll know in February because yeah, that's when uh, it's coming under consideration. So we'll we'll see how that one pans out.
2: I think, though, we should keep – you know, that what we should do within our own borders is keep up the pressure on the people who give tacit approval to this. Absolutely. And, 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 and force them to either make statements repudiating it like the people did eventually with Rick Warren. Right. Yeah. To
1: the extent that they not only just say to their fellow Americans, you know what, hey, I don't support this bill, that they go to the Ugandans and say, look, if you're thinking that what I said supports this kind of legislation – uh uh-uh, uh, didn't mean that, okay? Really, we need to go back to square one and and um work through this again. They need to whether it's their fault that it's there or not, um it's there and if they if they really don't well, like this even these people
0: who are condemning the bill um still say, well, it's showing that Uganda is taking a step in the right direction. Exactly. And, and that's that not is, condemning the bill. That is what is completely disgusting about this. It's like, okay, you know what? They're losing the battle here in the States Mm -hmm. and they can't take it. So they're going to go to other parts of the world and export their bigotry there. Right. That's I mean, that's well, what's absolutely is, disgusting. It was
2: also mentioned in, in other pieces like an NPR that, that what's happening with Africa, as we mentioned before, is that they're, the evangelicals are looking at South America and Africa as being the new front. If they can't make headway in secular Europe, absolutely. Uh, that they will – You know, this whole Anglican church thing and the, the, the schism that was caused by ordination of gay bishops, where do they go to find a, a bishop to run a conservative congregation? Yep. They go to Africa. So they kind of view that as being a whole unformed, uncharted territory of potentially conservative Christians that they can then Mm -hmm. co-opt.
1: And it should be pointed out, too, the epidemic of AIDS in Africa is so huge that it's it's an easy scare tactic. Look, homosexuals are, are causing this awful disease. Well, let's get rid of the homosexuals.
0: Yeah, yeah. Disregard the fact that most of uh, most of that is a, a heterosexual Absolutely. problem. In, and uh, the
1: Catholic Church who says don't use condoms and here burn all these condoms that have been sent to you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, on the domestic front, conservative Christian anti-gay activists are losing power.
1: Little by little. Yep. It seems but to more be rapidly
0: away. lately than ever before. Yeah. But many conservative Christians are rallying the troops again and trying to mount a new offensive against gay marriage. And one of the guys that's spearheading that effort is the subject of today's podcast. This is Robert P. George. A Catholic. A Catholic.
1: One of the few Catholic apologists we've really taken on.
0: And a professor of jurisprudence at Princeton University. Mm -hmm. A recent article in the New York Times titled The Conservative Christian Big Thinker by David D. Kirkpatrick has named Robert P. George as the country's most influential conservative thinker.
1: Which is saying a lot because I'd never heard of the guy until
0: now. I had um, back several years ago regarding the stem cell research. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, that's right. You know, um, George Bush veto or George Bush banning research on embryos and all these – All these embryos basically being sent to the trash uh, when when they could have been helping researchers. Uh, Robert P. George was – He
1: was at the forefront of
2: that movement.
0: Yeah. He really made some of the most convincing arguments on that side. But I'd I'd barely taken note of him.
2: I've noticed though that there's an uptick in when I see debates on chat rooms or or, or response boards uh, in this. It was an unfamiliar strain to me. I'm used to dealing with Protestant apologists. Right. And, or the people who just who, – who are uh, – give religious arguments on the basis of like personal revelation or yes. emotional arguments. But this was some of the first uh, – I started coming across more and more Catholic types who were using uh, a form of argument that I was relatively new to me based more on philosophy.
0: Yeah, and that is Robert P. George's claim to fame. He is a proponent of natural law ethics, mm-hmm. natural law philosophy. And usually I think when people think of natural law, if you know anything about kind of the ethical tradition there, people think of that as as being somewhat of a religious thing, right? Uh, God God is the author of nature. Studying nature, studying the book of nature is understanding God's mind. And so he has written his moral law into the very fabric of nature itself. And so living in accord with with natural law – uh, is is ethical it's one's god-given duty literally and, and what uh what people don't realize is actually that's that's one strain of natural law thought that's one strain of natural law ethics it's entirely possible to adopt that ethical perspective and have no commitment to theism whatsoever It has a long historical tradition that that precedes the Catholic Church. It goes all the way back to the Stoics in ancient Rome. It goes even further back to that. People trace natural thought thinking back to Aristotle. Uh, And modern theorists of natural law ethics insist themselves that you do not have to believe in God to accept this ethical theory. They insist. I'm not sure I'm always
1: buying it, but they do insist that.
0: Quoting the New York Times article – speaking about this, in the American culture wars, George wants to redraw the lines. It is the liberals, he argues, who are slaves to a faith-based secularist orthodoxy of feminism, multiculturalism, gay liberationism, and lifestyle liberalism. Conservatives, in contrast, speak from the high ground of non-sectarian public reason. So reason is the high ground against faith. Uh yes yeah. actually the way they are framing <laughs> the it we we it. are the ones who have faith and and they are yeah faith this is, is self evident reason Except supports their their traditional view God. and but this is this is what makes robert george so powerful and so influential Is because he doesn't have to stand up there and say, well, I believe the Bible says marriage is because a man and a woman and everybody can just object, well, I don't accept your interpretation of the Bible. I don't accept the authority of the Bible and legally that – argument is pretty much worthless because it would be um, an an establishment of religion.
1: Although I imagine it would actually hold up fairly well in many courts in this country.
2: He's not making an argument based on scripture. He's not making an argument based on personal revelation. His his argument is is based on taking these things to be fundamental truths in the structure of reality. And even
0: biology. He he frames it as an objective argument. uh, To quote the New York Times article again, what makes his natural law new is that it disavows dependence on divine revelation or biblical scripture or even history and anthropology. Instead, George rests his ethics on a foundation of practical reason and quoting George here, invoking no authority beyond the authority of reason itself. Sounds sounds like our kind of guy, really. Right. That's kind of what we ask for, is we ask for people to support their claims with reason and evidence and not uh, just with faith in Scripture. So this makes Robert George kind of a prime target for us. Absolutely. And, and a worthy target. So we're going to examine more closely his case against gay marriage.
2: Which is related to to the, the other issues of stem cell and abortion and right. gender politics, too. But it's yeah. most apparent with the gay marriage issue So because it rests on his foundation of what the purpose of marriage is.
0: Right. Right. And so real briefly before we get into this, I want to give our listeners who may not be familiar kind of an idea of how natural law ethics, how that thinking would proceed. Of course, there's all different varieties and I can't possibly do it justice while being brief. But I think kind of the essence of natural law thought is it doesn't have to be that right and wrong is actually written in the fabric of nature somehow, it's more of the idea is that before you understand what ethical goals are appropriate for a human being to follow or pursue, you have to know something about human nature itself. Mm -hmm. The way we are put together, composed, our our nature as human beings has relevant information for our ethical goals. Um, So a great case of this is uh, Aristotle, Aristotle's Ethics. Aristotle famously came up with the the goal or the purpose of humankind is eudaimonia, happiness, uh, but happiness in the sense of contentment or kind of a a peace of mind, prosperity, the good life. And how Aristotle arrived at that as the end goal of human ethics is he he just – he looked at human nature and he said, you know, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we pursue things like friends? Why do we pursue things like social prestige? Why do we pursue things like wealth? And in each of these cases he found, you know, we we go after these these goods because they help us to get or to reach some other good which is which is superior, which is better. You pursue wealth because wealth can help you live a more happy and satisfied life. You look for friendship and honor from your community for the same reasons. And so he terminates at some endpoint, some value, which is good for its own sake and for no other reason. And that's kind of how natural law thinking proceeds. You try to uh, identify a set of basic human goods. Those things that we do for their own sake, they need no further justification. They are an end in and of themselves, not a means to some other end. And then once you have an idea of what are those basic human goods? Then you can identify instrumental goods. You can identify other actions, other goods worth pursuing that will help you to achieve that superior, that superior good, um, what they would call an intrinsic good. So I set that up just so you have a basic idea of where George is coming from, and this is going to come into play when we consider objections to his idea. But real quick, let's summarize George's case against gay marriage. We'll be looking at Robert P. George's argument as it's presented in What's Sex Got to Do With It? Marriage, Morality, and Rationality from the University of Notre Dame, American Journal of Jurisprudence. Okay, so here's the problem. The institution of marriage is in crisis. Just look at the high rates of divorce or all these children that are being born out of wedlock, and you get the idea. Uh, The institution of marriage is in serious trouble today. And his idea is not that gay marriage is the cause of this crisis, that it's going to somehow destroy the family. Um, It's more of an idea that this is a symptom. Right. Gay marriage is a symptom of an underlying cause that is more deep and fundamental. Just
1: like divorce and children born out of wedlock. Yep.
0: What is the cause of the crisis of marriage? It is a failure of reason. It is a failure of people to really understand. As a society, we've actually lost touch with what the true value of marriage is. Mm. Uh, So quoting George,
1: The thesis I set before you is that a key source of the pathologies afflicting marriage in contemporary societies is the significant erosion and in certain circles nearly the complete loss of a sound understanding of marriage, especially in its sexual dimension as an intrinsic rather than merely instrumental
0: human good. Okay, so what does he mean here by intrinsic rather than merely instrumental? What marriage is to George, he defines it as a multi-level union. He says that marriage is a multi-level sharing of life, that is, a relationship that unites the spouses at the bodily – that means biological – at the bodily, emotional, dispositional, rational, and even spiritual levels of their being – so marriage is, is unity. Don't get too hung up on that spiritual part. Right. Marriage is, is unity experienced between two people. It's, it's the fullest kind of unity that two human beings can ever have. It operates on several different levels. That's mm-hmm. his, his basic idea. And so as such, marriage then is what he would call an intrinsic good, that marital union has intrinsic value. It's one of those basic human goods that you could identify.
1: It's good just by being. Right.
0: Just for its own sake. You don't need to pursue that for any other reason. So the opposite of an intrinsic good would be what he calls an instrumental good. Uh, That is something that is valuable only as a means to some other end. And so that's key to his understanding of the problem of marriage in today's society is that Marriage is an intrinsic good. It's not an instrumental good.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know it may have some instrumental goods attached to it. It's going to provide social benefits to the couple through tax breaks or whatever. and, and their marriage might help society in turn by providing an ins- a stable environment for children. Mm-hmm. but that's just a fortunate consequence. That's
1: not the point of it. Right.
0: Yep. That's not what it's about. It's a multi-level sharing of life. And that is valuable for its own sake. Now, why am I harping on this so much? Well, George says,
1: If marriage is understood, or in my view, misunderstood, as a purely instrumental good, then it is worth having and preserving precisely and only to the extent that it produces the satisfactions to which it is a means. Companionship, safe and reliable sexual pleasure, social standing, heirs, or any number of other benefits.
0: Okay, so... You're not getting along with your husband, you're not happy. Why bother trying to fix things, right? Just mm. find somebody new. Your wife's getting old and chubby, she's not putting that same fire in your loins as she used to. Trade her in for a younger model. You know, there's there's no need for effort, there's no need for patience. Why bother sacrificing to keep that that marriage alive? In the end, it's if we're just treating these as instrumental goods, it's it's really selfishness and convenience. That wins right. the day.
1: If you're not getting the value you used to, then what, what's the point?
0: Yeah. So in his mind, uh, when this kind of attitude is, is tolerated or even condoned by a society, so goes the argument, uh, the institution of marriage will collapse. Um, nobody's going to fight for it anymore. And those secondary benefits to society, which really are, are by no means trivial. That's very mm-hmm. of important. Course. Of course. Those secondary benefits to society are going to collapse with it in mm-hmm. his mind. So so far, I, this seems semi-reasonable. I, I don't really agree with everything he's saying here, but I don't think you have to agree with every point to at least see his logic right. here. The question is, what does any of this have to do with gay marriage? And it really all hinges back on his, his definition of marriage as this multi-level sharing of life and specifically what that entails for George. For him, it has a very strong relationship to the role of sex in marriage.
1: But very specific sex too.
0: Yeah, a certain type of sex as we're going to see. So to George, sex is an essential part of marriage. Sex consummates and actualizes the marriage. By actualize, we just mean it, it takes this abstract concept and makes it a physical reality so when you're having sex, then you're really married? Then you're experiencing that you're full experiencing multi-level okay. union. Yes, yeah. All yes. Right. But it's – as you said, it's not just any kind of sex. It has to be vaginal intercourse. Mm-hmm. Does that, that mean
1: that lesbians can have like twice the, uh, the marriage? Let
0: me be more specific. <laughs> they
2: don't have a uh...
0: – <laughs> a penis uh-huh. needs to enter into a vagina. That's the only sexual act – That will get you that one flesh unity between the two people. And he means one flesh. He means that literally. He's not using that as just a cute metaphor. He really believes that vaginal intercourse actually makes the couple one organism or at at least I guess he says function as one organism.
1: The one-flesh unity of spouses is possible because human males and females, by mating, unite organically. They form a single reproductive principle.
0: And then to illustrate this, he quotes Professor Germain Riaz, who is also a a natural law ethicist.
1: Though a male and a female are complete individuals with respect to other functions, for example, nutrition, sensation, and locomotion, with respect to reproduction – they are only potential parts of a mated pair, which is the complete organism capable of reproducing sexually.
0: Okay, so now you see why vaginal sex is so important to his framework mm-hmm. uh, because he really takes this seriously. They are really becoming one organism. First, I want to make some important clarifications about what exactly he means here so we Please don't get do. confused. Yeah. In order to have the one flesh unity, the sex doesn't need to result in pregnancy. As his cute expression in the New York Times article says, people who practice baseball can be teammates without victories on the field. <laughs> cute. Um, more surprising to me is that producing offspring doesn't even need to be the motivation for sex. And even further, he says it really shouldn't be. Uh, sex is for the good, again, of spousal unity. That's it. Children are just kind of this happy byproduct or, as he says, it's a gift that results from this one flesh unity. To achieve that one flesh unity, the sex doesn't need to be reproductive. In fact, it just needs to be reproductive in type, he says.
1: has to be the kind of sex that theoretically can produce offspring.
0: That's right. Um, And so, of course, in in his mind then, not all sexual acts are really marital acts um, if they are not reproductive in type. So masturbation is out the window. That's not going to help you. Anal sex, oral sex, these can't unite people organically to create that single reproductive principle. Mm -hmm. And because they don't, people – and this is a really weird point I think. Yeah, People don't – Because they are not aimed at achieving that marital unity, people don't seek them out for the sake of marital unity. They have more selfish motives like physical pleasure in mind. And I I just think it's silly because I don't see how those things could possibly be mutually exclusive. But we'll we'll get back to that Um, to quote George again.
1: Where one flesh unity cannot or cannot rightly be sought – Sexual activity necessarily involves the instrumentalization of the bodies of those participating in such activity to extrinsic ends, because in marital acts, sex is not instrumentalized. Such acts are free of the alienating and disintegrating qualities that have made wise and thoughtful people, from Plato to Augustine and from biblical writers to Kant, treat sexual immorality as a matter of the utmost seriousness.
0: Uh, okay. So um, in anal or oral sex, you're using the body as a tool. You're using the other person's body as a tool essentially just to get what you want, pleasure. And to him, that's dehumanizing the other person. Uh, it's even dehumanizing. When it's at its best, yeah. <laughs> it's even dehumanizing yourself. It's basically treating them as a means to some sort of end. hmm Ah, uh, but luckily, if the penis actually goes into the vagina, you're taking part of something greater. Two bodies are becoming one, and so and so there's another goal in mind uh marital unity so right. the conclusion that follows from all of this is that uh, technically, gay marriage is not really wrong um it's not even possible it doesn't exist their parts just simply won't allow them to experience the pure biological unity that heterosexuals can mm. and uh, another conclusion too is that uh, foreplay is okay uh, if it facilitates the penis entering into the vagina all other sexual acts are in some sense ethically wrong to him though I'm, I'm very happy that he clarified for us that doggy style is still okay Yeah, as long as it's going into the vagina
1: okay Luke is just shaking his
2: <laughs> head I've been containing myself <laughs> Yeah. as we've been patiently laying out the argument.
0: Uh huh. <sighs> All right. Um, so I think everybody who's listening to this right now is going, "Why is this guy <laughs> the most prominent intellectual?" That was you my know, thought. This is this just seems ridiculous on its face, and but I, I do want to try to impress on people why it's important that we actually look at George's arguments. Um, it's it's really hard to appreciate the brilliance of his argument and of his sophistry until you consider how you might try to object to it, sure um because he 's actually by starting off from this natural law foundation it 's very clever he's heading off many of the objections of an empirical nature that you might bring up to him. You know a typical thing we might try to do on the on the show is to show well okay let 's look at divorce. You know right. let's look at, uh, at, at marriages, let's compare the divorce rate between gays and heterosexuals, and uh, you know, show that, for example, the divorce rate is lower for gays than it is for conservative Christians. Well, so what? From yeah. George's account, That doesn't actually change the biological facts of the situation, right. Or you could bring up parenting. Um, whatever measure you choose – and we've talked about this on the uh, – what was that? The Speechless episode. Right. By whatever measure you choose, homosexual couples are just as good at parenting as heterosexual parents. Or in the case of lesbian couples we talked about, they might even be better. But this isn't going to make any difference to George. Maybe homosexuals can be good parents. Maybe they can have committed long-term relationships. Call it whatever you want. It's not marriage. Mm-hmm. That kind of unity – can only take place between a man and a woman. And it doesn't just sidestep these empirical objections. It, it really tries to get around certain philosophical objections too. So what if you object to his definition? Say, I don't accept your natural law idea. I think love is what matters most and shouldn't that be the basis of marriage? I think that's a very reasonable response right. that we typically would bring to an, to an argument like this. Well, then he springs the relativism trap on you. Well, you know what? That's just your subjective opinion, Dave. You know, of course. Oh, love, you know, that's great, flowery language, but you know you're just that's your secular faith. Uh, this definition that he's using, the natural law definition, rests on biological fact, uh, the reality of nature, not mere convention. And if we're going to base our definition on what the current social tastes are, what's trendy at this time, and not on something objective like human nature, well then what's gonna stop us from legalizing polygamy, incest, bestiality? Really, where are we gonna draw the line if it's all just our subjective social conventions? And, and then then his master stroke, in my opinion. Then he's perfectly positioned to shift the burden of proof from himself onto his opponents.
1: It is necessary, therefore, for critics to argue that the apparent one flesh unity that distinguishes marital intercourse from sodominical and other non-marital acts is illusory, and thus, that the apparent bodily communion of spouses in reproductive-type acts, which, according to the traditional view, forms the biological basis of their comprehensive marital relationship, is not really possible.
0: So now it's up to us to somehow prove that heterosexual intercourse doesn't become a mated pair, a complete organism of capable of reproducing sexually.
1: I suppose if you define organism
0: however you want, then... uh... Well, right. And I think we really can challenge this. I don't think it's all that difficult. Um, But before we get into that, let's first consider some other objections. One of the very first things I was thinking when I was reading this is, um, what about infertile couples? Absolutely. Can you say that they're really married? I mean if one of the partners is sterile or shooting blanks what what if the woman's had a hysterectomy
1: or she's postmenopausal
0: right yeah they're not a biological unity capable of reproducing sexually so so that's not a marriage
1: right well except it's the reproductive type act right
0: right he tries to sidestep it that way i mean he tries to answer this mm-hmm. he anticipates the argument but he he actually claims that sterility, and I'm not even sure why, but he claims this doesn't really matter.
1: But the plain fact is that the genitals of men and women are reproductive organs all of the time, even during periods of sterility. Acts that fulfill the behavioral conditions of procreation are reproductive in type, even when the non-behavioral conditions of procreation do not happen to obtain. Insofar as the point or object of sexual intercourse is marital union, the partners achieve the desired unity, become two-in-one flesh, precisely insofar as they mate, or if you will, perform the type of act, the only type of act, upon which the gift of child may supervene.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm crying fumble. Oh, there. big time. That's, that's where he screws it up. The, the biological unity of marriage is only possible through vaginal sex because that's when they become a complete organism, but it doesn't actually matter if they're capable of reproducing. Basically what he's saying here is what matters is that the junk is lined up properly.
1: Right. His his definition of marriage seems to be vaginal intercourse between a man and a woman.
0: Yeah, well that's the physical aspect of it.
1: Well, yeah, but I mean that's it it's inseparable from that part. Right. And you if know, you want to define it that way, I guess you can't have gay marriage. But but,
0: but yeah, it's it's ridiculous. He's going to – he might have had some grounds if he's talking about, OK, well, they, they're they capable of reproducing. But when he takes reproduction out of it, yeah. I mean he completely – if you can have a, a couple that are sterile but they're still – one organism capable of, rep- you know, that's like saying, okay, in the act of driving, the car and the driver become one unit. Right. But even if the engine won't start, or even if it doesn't even have an engine, just as long as you turn the steering wheels, operate the pedals, and go vroom, 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 vroom <laughs> you're still operating as as one unit. It's it's ridiculous. It completely falls apart. Really, you, you don't even have to go that far. He he really screwed things up as soon as he staked his one flesh unity idea oh, yeah. on 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 reproductive biology. He thought he was finding an objective basis, but as soon as he did that, he, he lost the argument um, because anybody who's going to take a closer look at human biology is hmm. going to have to think twice about using nature as a guide in this area. So now we turn to our expert on human sexuality here, uh, <laughs> uh, at least on the academic end.
2: <laughs> his argument is unusual in the sense that we usually have people complaining about sec, uh, evolution and secularism as, as saying that our evolutionary history is somehow justifies this or that behavior. That is, we're the ones that, that say, well, since, uh, you know, there appears to be violence in our evolutionary history, that doesn't make it so, you evolutionists. He's actually turned it around by saying, by using natural facts like the way a penis and a vagina go together to to justify why here's the way that it looks biologically so that right. justifies here's the way it should be right. th- or mm-hmm. that the only mm-hmm. way it could be. But if you look at sexuality, I mean, it just doesn't line up with the facts about like evolutionary theory about why, uh, you know, evolutionary theory says that different sexes exist, male and female, because there is an inherent competition involved, yes. not, right. not unity. Uh, that, that if you look at the reproductive tracts of me- of women, for example, they are often used to weed out and prevent uh, mm-hmm. conception, or at least not make it easy right. uh, to, uh, so that she can select the best sperm, for example. There's a whole area of sperm competition theory, not only with humans but with men, that, you know, why do chimpanzees have huge testes? Because they need to compete with other chimpanzees. Why do females, uh, one of the uh, theories about female orgasm is that it's designed to select or uh, suck up specific quality yep. male sperm. Why is the vagina so acidic to sperm, killing them? Is because it's it's basically weeding out the it's weenies. Yeah. And,
0: and and the male and the male sperm does this competition too, right? Like, I mean,
2: amongst themselves.
0: Uh, let's say a man and a woman are prevented from the ecstasy of biological union um, because <laughs> what <a> beautiful phrase <laughs> because he's he's going on a business trip or something. When he comes back and and has sex with his wife. The volume of his ejaculate his actually count. increases.
2: His sperm count, yeah. And animals mm. have things like sperm plugs and blocker sperm, where they try to, to fight out with another male's potential ejaculate. Uh, but even on a chromo- now we're finding even on a chromosomal level, there's actually competition between males and females for a dominance of which alleles become dominant for different really? traits. Yeah, uh, there's and, a and little has, war going on in there. B- there's behavioral evolution that, that talks about like a, w- with women when they're ovulating and they have a part, a steady partner, but who's not there, they behave or dress. Differently than when they either don 't have a partner or when the partner's with her, yeah. so there 's all sorts of converging evidence that, that 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 this one flesh unity idea is is simply uh, is not only um, odd but it's it 's actually the opposite that that in some ways there is an inherent competition between males and females, not that we don 't want to reproduce in a biological sense but just that there 's this idea of, of the monogamy standard of vaginal intercourse between a male and a female being that's the only thing that it exists for is to make conception easy is just wrong yeah yeah,
0: yeah mm-hmm. that's i even uh, this may be a little off the topic but i i was reading somewhere that even in pregnancy um this little genetic war between the sexes is still going on mm-hmm. so so the the, the on Tell the y chromosome on the y chromosome something's going on that's trying to get the fetus Yep. to draw more uh, resources from the mother, which could potentially harm her. If
2: you're a male and you have a child that a female is carrying, it's to your interest that benefit the child, even if in some cases not the mother. That is, well, right. if you had to choose to, your genetics want that child to exist. Right. For a female, that's the opposite. Yeah, and uh, they've evolved can countermeasures.
0: They've evolved uh, countermeasures to actually duke this out. Yeah, and I you mean, can think
2: that it's almost like a, a mathematical necessity that any male's chromosomes— who promote sur- fetus survival at all other expenses secondary is are going to survive more than ones that say oh yeah you want to abort my kid because you're not getting nutrition oh go ahead and do that, I mean it's right. th- there's an inherent conflict of interest in, in that, um, so that's one problem with his theory is that it, that doesn't fit up with that, you know and and I think that's a more general thing is that his the sophistry of his argument is apparent because it looks in, like you said before you mentioned it's almost designed to to do an end run around any empirical objections. Right. He even de- denigrates in some of his essays empiricism itself. He calls it reductionistic yeah. and, and the merely factual as opposed to the shining diamond of, of armchair uh, yes. type the rationalism. The merely factual. The merely factual is yeah. yeah. a phrase. And, and so like if when you start thinking of these things like what about infertility, what about this, uh, what about that, that, he will then say those are all instrumental aspects, not the... Yeah, uh, you know, the intrinsic uh, means to the goal. So, if you talk about like what's best for the child, we we mentioned divorce, for example. However, mm-hmm. regrettable that in some situations, research shows that divorce is actually in high conflict relationships. It's better for the kids that mm-hmm. their parents divorce.
1: I can speak to that personally. Uh, my my wife and her ex husband are both, and their children are better off. So because
2: he, they got divorced. He tries to, to actually throw things in there that you're not looking for, like, oh, empirical objections don't matter, but then he'll say, you know, divorce is a negative thing, look at the rampant divorce. Right. see he's, he's trying to have it both ways. Yep. He's trying to say divorce bad, marriage good, uh, homosexual marriage bad, but, oh, but any empirical objections, don't even try to make them against my argument.
0: Right, because he's created this philosophical foundation that, that he's going to work th- from. That that's why originally with his argument I was I was thinking, you know, most people, when they try the standard objections, you know, they're gonna be forced to refute the meta ethical foundations exactly. of natural law. And how many people are gonna be even even know how to approach that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that's why for this for this podcast, I decided. You know, we really don't even need to go there. I mean, I do think there are some serious problems with with natural law. It's not the form of ethics that I personally adopt for myself, right. but I think an atheist or a naturalist could could adopt some of those some of those ideas. But but the point is, we we don't even need to go that far. We can go within his system and show that, yeah this this idea. Of somehow that this is a the humans are forming a reproductive unity functioning as one organism
2: that is as he says as he challenged us to show that's illusory that that is it's arbitrary why is that the goal you can so it's almost like he's saying philosophically I've identified this bedrock here's this bedrock right. principle of one flesh and that's the thing that it has to stand on why. Yeah. Right. Well why does marriage where, have where to stand that on that? From? And
0: and if he's really serious about uh looking to human biology to find this foundation, well then as you just pointed out, Luke, he'd be better off looking at, at reproduction as genetic warfare, basically. Well, it's and, sexual competition for individual reproductive gains and think about at the, every level.
2: Think about the implications of that too, for things like marital happiness women's rights, even child welfare, he's prepared to throw that baggage overboard right. for a, a yep. idealized thing. So like we said, you know, with, with divorce, with child welfare, or in like a gay couple raising a kid, he's willing to then say, well, the child's welfare is not the primary thing. That's a secondary aspect of, mm-hmm. of what marriage right. is for. Traditional, you know, he, he's placing all his things on, on that. And
0: The holy uh, act of getting the junk in one place yeah. is superior to all other ends. It,
1: it's a mistake too to say that you know because the, because the two parts fit together so perfectly that's the way it should be because there are other parts that fit together really well too and
0: well that's why I thought this this other quote that he added mm-hmm. where he said he quoted this guy John Finnis who's another Catholic philosopher and he goes uh, it would be more realistic to acknowledge that the whole process of copulation um, and, and I should say he brought this up. To as a counterpoint to people who are saying, "Look, your argument excludes infertile couples from from being married," right. uh, he brought this up as his, as his counter argument. It would be more realistic to acknowledge that the whole process of copulation involving as it does the brains of the man and the woman, their nerves, blood, secretions, coordinated activity is biological through and through. The organic unity, which is instantiated in the act of a reproductive kind, is not the unity of the penis and the vagina. It's the unity of the persons in the intentional consensual act of sexual intercourse. My God, he just – it's like he's – I said fumble earlier. This is like he's passing the ball to the other team. Yeah, it, it's just—it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So, so why then? Why does it matter if it's vaginal intercourse? If it's about all this this multi level working together, that's that's silly
2: yeah I think that w- his his argument against this is we've been talking about the gay marriage thing, but he extends the same principle to other things like we mentioned stem cell research uh even traditional you know like traditional marriage where the where the each sex has some sort of unique role by biology uh he extends this view to things like you know a lot broad variety of social policies so you can go and look up if you if you look on the web you can look up his essays on a variety of topics beyond gay marriage, mm-hmm. but they all involve this notion of traditional uh, values being justified philosophically yeah. through pure reason, and I think what 's dangerous what our listeners need to know is this is not just dangerous for gay marriage or or the stem cell research it 's dangerous o- on a, on a level of society, because in some yeah. of his essays, he's arguing that this trumps things like, for example, democracy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Democracy is yeah. not a primary value, he argues. It is not a—it's uh, uh, one of those instrumental values that's not good in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And right. So he's basically like on issues, he's urging Catholics to not go along with essentially a social consensus. Right.
0: Yeah, uh, and even if we find his arguments silly, um, what people also need to realize and why this Robert George guy is a very important figure to watch is because natural law ethics does have a foothold in legal thinking. Yeah, absolutely. It, it has been
2: Scalia. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, yeah. And,
0: and in specific individuals, yes, like Justice Scalia, take this guy's word very seriously. He is influencing what a lot of conservative judges and who knows, maybe even— Maybe even liberal judges in this country are oh, thinking I'm sure.
2: I'm and arguing sure. that these views should have the force of law. that's right, yes
0: most importantly, as as we've tried to point out, you know, people are going to be ill prepared critiquing this with just the traditional counter arguments. so going along that line to kind of kind of wrap this discussion up, I'm not very into natural law, but working from his framework, I'd like to submit. That, if human nature really does point to some sort of biologically based intrinsic good i 'd like to submit that it 's not something as superficial as the junk lining up, uh, but it's the bond that forms between individuals, not the genitalia that they happen to bring to the party uh the The sexual act can. Foster bonds in the brain.
2: Right. You know, the release of oxytocin. Following but you don't have to be married and, to do that. Yeah, the, right. the, the people bond. That's a general. That's not unique to that. It's it's a general trusting. Aspect right. of things, so uh, you know you could you could have the same effect by masturbating next to somebody else and yeah. talking with yeah. them or something, sure
0: you know, to use his own terms, I would just say marriage is an instrumental good, it's in service of the of the bond that's created between two individuals. it just he really does have his priorities and his values in the wrong place. I don't see how any ethical system can stand regarding marriage if it doesn't place the priority in the relationship.
2: Yeah, and his, uh, for those listeners out there, too, that, that come across people like this that make this argument, because like I said, I've been running into more and more people on, yeah. on boards and, and who argue from this, who look like they've been reading from this playbook. And it, it sounds very tough to argue against because they say we're about rationalism. We're not scriptural. We're not basing on this. What you then have to say is, uh, is it's armchair rationalism. It's yeah. the Thomas Aquinas type philosophizing about angels on the head of opinion type rationalism it's cut itself and here's the, the thing that upsets me the most it's cut itself free from empiricalism. Mm-hmm. the yeah. rationalism pure rationalism is not the same as empirical validation That's right. right we often mention those two it things it has in no one external breath. check you have to have an external check on whether your ideas mesh up with reality That's and right. he has cut himself loose from that if this is such a great idea if one flesh unity is the ideal for marriage it should then line up with empirical things like does it, are the children happiest right. are they you know uh, are they the longest-lasting things? For example, mm-hmm. you know, in Europe, their uh, cohabitational relationships last longer Absolutely. than the marriages in yeah. the United States. If one flesh unity in marriage is a good thing. Why is that the case? That's right.
0: He's insulating his, his theory from reality is so basically what he's doing. And then having the audacity to call it
2: natural so law. Listeners need to bone up on, on ob- empirical objections to these arguments. And then when they're confronted with one of these types of Jesuitical thinkers to then throw that at them and say, if, this, if your theory is in any way related to reality, prove it. But I, I
0: I would add to that though I do – I think this is also an example of why it's important to be uh, familiar and conversant with, with philosophy because if you don't have an appreciation of his starting point, um, you're not going to know how to effectively articulate those, those empirical objections. And there was one other thing I wanted to say. I think the one flesh, that phrase, should also be kind of a – a tip to anybody what's what's actually going on here. Why, why does he call it one flesh? And that's obvious because it, it comes from the Bible. It I comes from say. Genesis. This guy, he, he's making his arguments like a philosopher, mm-hmm. but he's thinking like an apologist. Yeah. He's starting with his end conclusion,
2: and they always seem to line up magically with his right, yeah. with biblical principles. The, the Catholic and then he's, stamp on this. He's tailoring
0: this. all read. of his of his starting assumptions to get him to that end yep. conclusion. Absolutely,
2: no, and read his essays on things like uh, a social policy. He'll say he'll say Catholics, you want to fight oh, for poverty yeah. and social justice? Mm. Yeah, do that all you want, but don't. These are not gospel issues. He even says that somewhere in there, in the, uh, it quotes him like in the New York Times piece as saying, we need to fight for the gospel issues of homosexuality and and <laughs> Which marriage. isn't really gospel. Yeah. That's a gospel yes. issue? <laughs> and not social justice, sir? Yeah, uh, yeah. So, you know, yeah. he.
0: Yeah. When you actually turn to like a religious magazine, what was the one you looked up, Luke? Uh, there was some religious periodical that he mm-hmm. writes for. He completely. Touchstone. Yes, Touchstone. Uh, thank you. When you read those, it becomes completely clear where he's coming from. His stuff on a abortion that he wrote – He's actually comparing liberals to—he's calling them worshippers of the detestable god molech.
2: And, and sex education wow. is yeah. sex really? education is uh, is uh, mysticism and and uh, oh my sophism. You know, he's, yeah, he, he's across the whole board. Sex education, uh, tradi- uh, non-traditional gender roles of egalitarian sex. You know, women are not safe from this guy. Uh, he's saying that you know that they are, that they have specific roles based on their biology.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, he's the he may claim that he's using a, a rational approach, but Catholicism is stamped all over his way of thinking. It, it's
2: almost like we mentioned Scalia before. It's almost like we can predict yeah. what decision he's going to make before he ever makes it. Absolutely. It, yeah. it, it makes a mockery of the, of an independent, you know, like a judge, just to know that somebody's going to take a certain position and then post hoc generate whatever rationale you need well, to get Well, that there. New
0: York Times article talked about all his connection. He's got Scalia's ear. He's got Newt Gingrich's ear. He's actually... Um, doing some of the most to bring together all these warring factions yeah. of Protestants and Catholics together to get behind these really reactionary policies. Because it
2: takes on this veneer of an intellectuality and, and an independence from the emotional aspects of religion. Right. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can make your stand on a rational basis.
0: So I wouldn't be surprised if Robert P. George shows up again on the podcast sometime in the future.
1: Yes. He's on our radar now. All right, we're going to end this week with another Stranger Than Fiction. <music> Customers who bought this item also bought...
0: That sounds like it's from Amazon.com. Well,
1: you know what? In, in keeping with our show about Catholics and sexuality, um, here's a... Amazing little hybrid of the two.
2: I thought for sure this was a hoax. It, it, it may be a hoax, but I, boy, you know, Amazon's probability rankings don't, or you know, whatever. However, they yeah. they, they conglomerate their products. Buy this, and you'll get this. Don't lie. I don't think it's
1: so. it's pretty hard to fake it. I would think um, on Amazon.com, you can buy a box of one thousand communion wafers.
2: So it's your go go-to shop for bulk supplies if you are stocking up your. Okay, Absolutely. Uh, get me some Jesus bread, fine.
1: <laughs> That's right. And and if you look on the Amazon page where it says customers who bought this item also bought, there's things like communion cups and um, other communion wafers yeah, of different sizes. All the sizes. paraphernalia
0: you might expect.
1: Exactly. And Astroglide. <laughs> Astroglide personal lubricant. <laughs> customers who bought communion wafers also bought. Astro Glide. And that's not a plug for the particular brand. Um, so
0: the picture that pops into my mind is of some priest who's getting all his necessities and – oh, forgot one thing.
1: That's right. Oh, man. Because – well, and, and uh, to be fair, I checked the Astroglide page just out of curiosity um, to see if communion wafers were ranked in the top of – customers who bought or this also bought this or do they need to be this.
0: lubricated to be eaten or something
1: uh but that's not the case could indicate stale well, if people who life. it turns out pe- people who Bought Astroglide, also bought more Astroglide. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: as Jeremy would tell you, the probability of Q then P is not the same as probability it, exactly. of P, like, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But I just wanted yeah. to check
1: the the correlation, just in there. case. So um, I'm <laughs> yeah. not sure what the story is here. I'm not sure I want to know. The,
0: the sad The sad story is that if you go and you check this out yourself, um, it has been it's been changed, the site updated, but. I got a screenshot of it before it went That's down, right. so you can see that at doubtcast.org.
1: And, you know, if we, um, if enough of you out there decide to make purchases, we could probably get it back up there <laughs> for all your communion wafer and personal lubricant needs. All right. Well, on that very bizarre and disturbing note, we're going to end it this week. Until next time, check out our website, www.doubtcast.org our forum at doubtcast.forummotion one m in the middle dot net email doubtcast at gmail dot com find us on Facebook, Twitter or Zazzle where you can buy a nifty t-shirt at slash doubtcast and that's all for this week we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more of your skeptical guide to religion